Well, good morning. I add my greeting to Austin's from earlier in the service. My name's Nick, as he just prayed, and that's good to be with you. A public thanks is an order to Austin and Tim uh, for preaching in my absence and doing many other things, I'm sure, of which I may not even know. And of course, every Sunday, we could publicly thank Alex Rubottom for all she does to keep the church moving forward as well. So thanks to all of you. Um, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Exodus chapter 20 as we continue our sermon series in the Ten Commandments. We've reached the Ninth Commandment, and I do plan to only preach one sermon from the Ninth Commandment, and that is today. Of course, I'll read from verses 1 and 2 as I have every Lord's Day that we've been in this sermon series to remind us that we are a redeemed people. We have received grace before we're given instruction. If you're able, I invite you please to stand for the reading of God's holy word out of respect for it. Then I'll pray and I'll invite you to be seated. Again, Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of of slavery. Now verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Amen. This is God's holy and inspired word. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word remains forever. Let me pray. And I'll invite you to be seated. Oh Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So unstop our ears, open our eyes, Prick our hearts that we might behold marvelous things in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we come down to the ninth commandment, the ninth commandment is a lot like the sixth, seventh, and eighth that came before it, in that the commandment itself is giving us kind of the worst example of a particular kind of sin. So do not murder kind of the worst way to fail to preserve human life. Do not commit adultery, kind of the worst way, worst example of a realm of things. Same with do not steal. So as we come to the ninth commandment, sometimes we think of this commandment as the do not lie commandment. And it is that, it does include that. That is certainly true. We'll spend a significant portion of the end unpacking lying, but the command that you shall not bear witness against your neighbor has to do with failing to love and honor our neighbors according to the truth. So it encompasses much more than just lying. Bearing false witness, telling lies or untruths about other people have devastating consequences for them or have the potential of devastating consequences for them. That's kind of obvious, but what I hope you'll take away from today is that it could also have devastating consequences for you when you bear false witness against others. Here's the main point. God is truth, and he expects his people to live in light of the truth. God is truth, and he expects his people to live in light of the truth. Here are the three ways at which we'll get to that main point. God is truth. Second, protect other people's reputation. 
Third, avoid untruth. Let's start with God is truth. Many of you could answer the question from the shorter catechism number four, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So part of our definition that we get from Scripture that we've encapsulated in the Shorter Catechism is that God is truth. And the Bible has many ways of getting at this. Rarely does it say God is truth. It says things like this from 1 John 1.5. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Or Jesus praying to his Father in John chapter 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Or Jesus saying of himself in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or Psalm 25, going back to the Old Testament, The psalmist writes, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. And for you, I wait all the day long. We're in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. We could keep going. I hope you get the point that in many ways the Bible is getting at God is truth. And since God is truth, we should care deeply as his people about the truth. And all that corresponds with what is true and with what is the truth. We have to pursue what is true about God and what is true about others. And of course, the opposite of truth we get from God's word are lies, deception, untruth. And the prevalence and the influence of lies and deception, etc., is attributed to Satan throughout the entire Bible. He is called by Jesus in John 844, the father of lies. He's called the God of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. And he's called the deceiver in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. He's the father of lies, the one who blinds. He's the deceiver. He is the Lord of all that is untrue. And every person who's ever lived if they are not saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, are dominated by the effects of this great deceiver and the teller of untruths. This is our doctrine of total depravity. Since Adam and Eve, and since the greatest spin job the world has ever seen through that devilish serpent, men and women, boys and girls, children of every size have been dominated by lies and untruths. Unbelievers in their relation to God only play on Satan's playground. Believers sometimes play on Satan's playground. But we have the ability 
to refuse Satan's playground. We've been redeemed. Our eyes have been opened. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and we have the ability to live there and to, to speak the goodness of God. To use the language of the ninth commandment, we are all of us, by nature, witnesses. You don't choose to be a witness. You are one. The question is, what kind of witness are you? What kind of witness are you? We're either witnesses of lies and untruth and deception and harm, or witnesses of light and truth and life. Which kind of witness are you? If we were to evaluate the next 178 hours of your life, what kind of witnessing are you about? Can you think of a time where you were not careful with your words, for example, towards or about someone else? We'll get to gossip in a minute, slander. Can you think of a time when you didn't care as much about the truth or about loving someone and protecting their reputation than you were about just getting it out? James 3, 5 through 8 tells us this. The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird or reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. That's explaining you and me. <laughs> Even if we've been saved by the blood of Christ, even if we've been given a new heart, that still is, is explaining us at times, every human being. No one can tame the tongue. It's especially difficult when our hearts are upset and, and we fail to let peace and humility reign. Instead, we let strife and hatred and passions of the flesh Rain, which is why we must remember the admonition, the commandment, the exhortation from the Apostle Paul in places like Colossians 3 to put to death what is earthly in us. Put to death false witness. Put to death lies. Put to death failure to preserve the reputation of others. Put it to death. Put off the old self. Put on the new self. You are a new creation in Christ. Put on what accords with the gospel. Put on, wear the fruit of the Spirit. And above all else, love. Use Colossians 3 to avoid James 3. And when we do that, we do have a fighting chance. We have a fighting chance of protecting other people's reputation, which is our second major heading. Since God is truth, and God expects us as his people to witness like him, according to what he's told us, we ought to protect other people's reputation. 
It's helpful to hear how the Heidelberg Catechism unpacks the ninth commandment. The question there is, what is the aim? What is the aim of the ninth commandment? Here's the answer. That I never give false testimony against anyone, twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. That's the negative part. That's what we shouldn't do. Rather, here's what we should do. In court and everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are the very devices the devil uses, and they would call down on me God's intense wrath. I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. That's a great way to boil down the ninth commandment. You'll notice tomorrow, or whenever you see the Westminster Larger Catechism, where wise theologians and pastors have applied the ninth commandment, I checked, I did it quickly. It is the longest answer in the entire Larger Catechism. It's longer than the, vi- the ways that we violate the first commandment. What are the sins forbidden in the ninth commandment? Longest answer in the entire catechism. In other words, endless ways that you and I can violate the ninth commandment. And I say that quite, it's somewhat hyperbolic, but I hope you get the point. So negatively, in this first portion of the Heidelberg Catechism, we should never give false testimony against anyone, including twisting their words, or gossip or slandering, or condemning anybody rashly or without a hearing. And now let's just get this out of the way now. The world in which we live, the digital world in which we live, makes this nearly impossible unless we're being intentional. Social media is not concerned about the ninth commandment. The media in general does not promote a careful speech. Instead, they're more concerned about the freedom of speech. I'm free. I can, I can say whatever I want. Well, that's partially true. You do have freedom of speech, but in Christ, my friends, we also have freedom of not speaking. We have freedom to speak in a holy manner. And we have an obligation to make sure that our speech is true and is accurate. The share button is a lot easier. The click on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, Daily Wire, whatever else is out there is a lot easier than refraining because you know of what you're about to click on. We twist people's words. How easy is it to do that? Right? We can repeat someone's words verbatim and still be twisting them depending on what context we're using and what our motive is. And when we do things like that, we're almost always doing it for our benefit or for some cause that we're passionate about. We imply motives. We use a certain tone to communicate. We could be in grave danger of twisting someone's words and bearing false witness against them. Or we can gossip or slander. One definition I found of gossip or slander this week was this. Gossip is passing along something that cannot be substantiated. 
slander takes it to the next level, but not only can it not be substantiated, but you actually have intent to harm. Right? You heard this juicy piece of information, and you've just got to share it. You don't, you, don't, you don't worry about verifying its truthfulness. You just got to state, you just got to tell somebody else. People love secrets, don't they? From a very young age, we love secrets. Secrets make fast friends. It brings people together like glue. It also tears people apart. It can be a blunt instrument gossip that does someone significant harm. Here, Proverbs 25, 8. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club, a sword, or a sharp arrow. And I've got to say, perhaps the worst form of gossip in the church of God is cloaked in the form of a prayer request. Oh, did you hear Nick? Did you hear what Nick did? You need to pray for Nick. No, 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 no. If you didn't hear it from Nick and you didn't get permission from Nick, don't share a prayer request from Nick. Be careful. Be mindful. Much gossip, potentially much slander is cloaked in the church in the form of prayer requests. The wise writer of the proverb wrote other things like this, Proverbs 18.8. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down in the inner parts of the body. Danger zone. Proverbs 16, 28, a dishonest man spreads strife. A whisperer separates close friends. May gain new friends who have an itching ear who want such delicious morsels to go down, but it separates others. We are never, friends, to give false testimony against anyone, including in condemning them rashly or without a hearing. Now, there had to be one witness in the Old Testament in our courts of law. We want more than one witness as well. Uh, In the Old Testament, an Israelite who bore false witness, who was caught bearing false witness in the Old Testament, if found guilty, would have that penalty that he or she desired for the person that they're bearing false witness on done against them. So, so if they're on, somebody is on trial for murder and you're bearing false witness, they really didn't murder, but you're saying that they did, the penalty for murder is on you. That's how serious bearing false witness was in God's people. So for theft, the penalty would be the same penalty for theft. It was serious business. And so we ought not condemn someone by judging them rashly or without a hearing, even even if you see it on social media. Best thing to do is to call them. I've learned this the hard way within the last year and a half. Best to call someone and ask them, hey, what is it that you meant with that tweet or whatever it's called now? What did you mean? Can I talk to you about that? Rather than condemning them without having the opportunity to give them the right to defend themselves. Proverbs 18, 17 says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes in and examines him. Right? In the United States, this has something to do with innocent until proven guilty. 
That's how we approach things. Innocent until proven guilty. There's a process by which we condemn people. There's a process by which we see that they are guilty and they receive the just, just punishment for their actions. Now, a way to protect other people's reputation in, in modern language is to think the best of them even in the midst of significant trial. Think the best of them. Jesus models this for us on Calvary's hill. They are guilty of hanging him on a cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Yes, they wanted to hang me, but they don't even know who I am or what they're doing. And the truth is, when we're witnesses or victims of a heinous sin, and sometimes we are, when we are, we can use that opportunity to thank God for his restraining grace in our own lives. We got... We have the opportunity to thank God for keeping us from committing the same kind of sin which we are all capable of. He who is without sin cast the first stone. So if our words can set a forest on fire, metaphorically speaking, then we should recognize that they can cause great harm to others. In the Old Testament, that could be a matter of life and death. In the New Testament and today and within the church, our words can be spiritually, emotionally, and sometimes even physically damaging to others. The way that we handle these difficult situations in the church, the way we handle them, is a testimony and it is a witness to the watching world. It's a witness. I wish I would have known this about 12 years ago. I wish I would have known how far this commandment penetrates our hearts. In my previous career, I uh, was known as, as the guy that would fix a project or fix an organization. So I was quickly moved. I was moved all the time between organizations. In a matter of years, there was three or four moves, and I took on pieces of the company that were failing or broken or something else. And in one of those takeovers, my superior said to me, Nick, find every fault, document everything, tell me about it, and then fix it. I did it. But along the way, I tarnished a man's reputation. I found every hole. I found every problem. But I also made that man look like an inept loser and he wasn't. He had a couple of bad bosses himself. And so here I was coming at him from the bottom and he's getting direction from the top and he's stuck in the middle. And when I realized what I'd done three years later, I went to his cubicle and I asked him for forgiveness. And he granted it. I think, I think he genuinely granted me forgiveness. I know I meant my apology. Is there anyone to whom you need to go and apologize for the words that you've used to them or about them? The thing about gossip, the thing about slander in particular is sometimes the people don't even know, but you know. And the person you may be talking to also knows. If you have someone in mind, go soon. Do it soon. Do it earnestly and seek to love the truth, to speak it candidly, to acknowledge it openly, to live in light of the truth that God has given to us as, as a Christian. 
Two more sentences of application, especially to get at this idea of gossip and slander, which sometimes is prevalent in the church. We ought to be quicker to ask, hmm, should we call a timeout here? Should we call a timeout and evaluate if we should be having this discussion? Let's be quicker to do that than to say, hmm, who can I tell about this? Let's be quicker to ask, hmm, am I playing jury, judge, and prosecutor right now? Let's be quicker to ask that question than Oh, I'm going to make some accusations based on the limited amount of information that I have. These are ways that we can love our neighbor in the midst of difficult circumstances. We can protect their reputation and we can promote the truth. And lastly, we should avoid untruth. Avoid untruth. If the opposite of truth is deception and lies and the devil and his devilish kingdom are about deception and lies, we ought to put them to death. Here's the Heidelberg Catechism again, the positive things that we should do. Rather, in court, and in court was, of course, the very narrowest way that the, the ninth commandment was, was talking about, right? False witness, we think of a court. But in, so in court, in, in all areas of life, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are the very devices of the devil, and they would call down on me God's intense wrath. I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. Of course, this is difficult, because as one commentator put it, lying runs deep. We learn to lie from a very young age. False witnessing runs deep. Our hearts are wicked, and they are desperately sick, and we need constant help from the great physician to continually provide the healing that we need by grace. But this means that we should avoid exaggeration. We should avoid deception. We should avoid half-truths. We should avoid spinning the truth. Now, when we're talking about lies, and here we are, we're going to kind of focus on lies pretty much till the end now. When we're talking about lies, there are aspects of life that are built upon deception or half-truths or spinning the truths that are acceptable. Here's an example. Magic. Like the good use of magic. It's built on the sleight of hand. It's entertaining. How in the world did he put that card in his mouth? And that's the card that I signed. Deception, half-truths, right? Or for you football fans, the play-action pass where the quarterback tries to, uh, uh, fakes it to the quarterback, hides it on his leg, rolls out, then throws the touchdown pass to the wide receiver, that's deception, but it's not a violation of the ninth commandment. And I've got to say, neither are my tactics in board games like counting how many ore and wheat cards you have in Settlers of Catan. That's, that's well within the rules of the game. That, that is why I've been nicknamed the sledgehammer for my uh, competitiveness. And I'll let you evaluate if calling me the sledgehammer is bearing false witness or not. Um, and I, I am competitive. But those types of things are built into the game. It's not, it's not my fault that you are easily showing me all the cards that you've picked up. Those are not lies. Those are not violations of the ninth commandment. But joking Sarcasm, poking fun, can be and oftentimes is. There's often a victim in sarcasm. There's often a victim in, in poking fun. And these can quickly become bearing false witness with malicious or harmful intent. 
Listen to Proverbs 26, verses 18 and 19. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. Sometimes joking is just fine. Other times what we're really doing is throwing firebrands and arrows that cause death. Now, there is this topic of lying that I think we ought to address. It's not common, but it's called the lie of necessity. Have you ever heard of this term before? The lie of necessity. It's covered in ethics generally, but I want to focus on what theologians say about it. And it gives us three important ideas. Speaking of the lie of necessity, right? Theologians have asked, is it ever okay for a Christian to lie, to tell something that is not true? Well, before I answer that, let me give you two examples to kind of make it real. Let's say that you lived in Europe during the reign of Adolf Hitler. And it, to love your neighbor, you decide that you're going to dig a hole underneath your family room and, and cover it and make it look like nobody lives down there so that when the Nazis come knocking, they can't find the Jew that you know. And maybe he has a family. And when they knock, if you say, yes, they're here, that's a problem because you know what's going to happen to the Jew. And if you say no, then you're lying. What about war? If, if your enemy says, are you coming to fight us tomorrow? Are you supposed to say yes? That would be foolish. This fleshes out or introduces maybe a better way to say it, another principle that is the priority of the moral law. The priority of the moral law. In the case of the Nazis coming to your door, theologians have argued, and I fall in this camp, that the priority of preserving life is a higher priority than lying to the Nazi. You know what's going to happen to that Jew. Their life will be at stake. And so lying to the, the Nazi is less of a priority than preserving the life of that man, woman, or child in their family. And that leads us to a third idea that has to do with the, the lies of necessity. And that is the, the people that are doing this, Nazis or an enemy, and we'll and will argue that we are defending ourselves. We're not, the, we're not the provocateur in the war. We're the defenders. We're defending ourselves when somebody comes after us. The Nazi and the provocateur in the war are no longer your neighbor. Not right now. They have become your enemy. They are trying to do you harm. They are coming after you or somebody whom you love to do them harm. Could they become your neighbor eventually? Again, yes. Absolutely, they could. But in this instant, they are not your neighbor, and so no longer do you owe them what you owe a neighbor. You owe the preservation of life and following what I'm arguing is the priority of the law. Do you see the difference? A Nazi has proven that he's not your neighbor. All he wants to do is harm to the Jews and those who help them. So in that moment, there's an intention of harm, and we have an obligation to protect ourselves and to protect others. Now, most of us will never have to deal with these decisions, but we ought to come at this and be prepared for these kinds of things. 
It should remind us all that God never puts us in a situation where we have a moral dilemma. That's why this is important. God will not bring to us a moral dilemma. He is not a God of confusion. He is a God of truth and a God of love. A couple of examples of this in Scripture is uh, the Hebrew midwives in the early chapters of Genesis. Pharaoh says, no more births, kill all the babies, kill all the male babies. What do they do? They say no. Moses is born. Others are born. They deceived, and it was the right thing to do. Rahab, hiding the spies in the early chapters of Joshua, hiding the Israelite spies, letting them go, lying, not a moral dilemma. They chose the better portion. They chose the higher priority of the law. Children, ask your parents for help when you seem to have an issue in life. They are wiser than you think that they are, and they can help. Ask others in the church. Ask your pastors. We would love to help walk through situations in your life where it seems like hard decisions need to be made. And it takes the wisdom of Solomon to discern these kinds of things. So don't make the decisions yourselves. That leads us right before we close to the most common category of lies, the malicious lie. The lie to do harm. The, the, the lie to cause someone else harm. We lie to protect ourselves. We lie to harm others. These are the devices that the devil uses. They are not from our heavenly father. They're from the devil. And engaging in lies and deceit. The Heidelberg Catechism says, we'll call uh, down on us God's intense wrath. Now, I don't know what the difference between the intense wrath of God and the wrath of God is, but I don't want to find out. And I know you don't either. So as we close, I want to return to an idea that I brought up in the beginning, that we are all witnesses. We tell a story. Our lives reflect, reflect reality about good and evil, about life and death, about light and darkness. God says this in Isaiah 43, verse 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. You are my witnesses. And since we're witnesses, we don't become witnesses, we are witnesses. The question is, what kind of witness will you be? Hear these words from Jesus in Matthew 12. Either make the good, uh, tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Everyone in your life will know you by your fruit. Does your witness and the fruit that is expected of you match? Be the tree that produces good fruit, brothers and sisters. What words do you choose to use generally and about others? Do they set a forest ablaze? 
Do they curse others? Do they cause harm to others to protect you and your reputation? Brothers and sisters, we've been washed. We've been sanctified. We've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So as we confessed together earlier in the service, let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in God's sight, for he is our rock and he is our redeemer. He is the truth and light and life. Through Christ, God has called us to live in light of his truth, in light of his life, that we may live according to the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we know and confess that our words reflect the condition of our hearts. Our hearts were once dead in sin, but you have for all your people, you have made us alive together with Christ. You've given us a new heart, which means our words and our lives and all that we do can reflect our new nature. So may we be careful with every word we speak, that it would be for the building up, not for tearing down, for offering life, not leading to death. Produce fruit in us, O Lord, in keeping with our righteousness that you have given to us as a gift of grace. We ask that you do it today and that you continue to do it day by day until we see you face to face. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.